Section 15 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1, by Alexander Dumas. Translated by G. B. Ives. Section 15. The Borgias. Chapter Seven, Part Two. Two days after this resolution had been taken, Caesar learned that the day of his departure was fixed for Thursday, the fifteenth of June. At the same time, he received an invitation from his mother to come to supper with her on the fourteenth. This was a farewell repast given in his honor. Michelotto received orders to be in readiness at eleven o'clock at night. The table was set in the open air in a magnificent vineyard, a property of Rosa Venoza's, in the neighborhood of San Piero in Vinculus. The guests were Cesar Borgia, the hero of the occasion, the Duke of Gandia, the Prince of Squillas, Dona Sancha, his wife, the Cardinal of Monte Reale, Francesco Borgia, son of Calixtus III, Don Rodrigo Borgia, captain of the Apostolic Palace, Don Goffredo, brother of the Cardinal, John Borgia, at that time the ambassador at Perugia, and lastly Don Alfonso Borgia, the Pope's nephew. The whole family, therefore, was present except Lucrezia, who was still in retreat and would not come. The repast was magnificent. Cesar was quite as cheerful as usual, and the Duke of Gandia seemed more joyous than he had ever been before. In the middle of supper a man in a mask brought him a letter. The duke unfastened it, colouring up with pleasure, and when he had read it, answered in these words, I will come. Then he quickly hid the letter in the pocket of his doublet, but quick as he was to conceal it from every eye, Cesar had had time to cast a glance that way, and he fancied he recognised the handwriting of his sister Lucrezia. Meanwhile the messenger had gone off with his answer, no one but Cesar paying the slightest attention to him, for at that period it was the custom for messages to be conveyed by men in domino, or by women whose faces were concealed by a veil. At ten o'clock they rose from the table, and, as the air was sweet and mild, they walked about a while under the magnificent pine-trees that shaded the house of Rosa Venoza, while Cesar never for an instant let his brother out of his sight. At eleven o'clock the Duke of Gandia bade good-night to his mother. Cesar at once followed suit, alleging his desire to go to the Vatican to bid farewell to the Pope, as he would not be able to fulfill this duty on the morrow, his departure being fixed at daybreak. This pretext was all the more plausible, since the Pope was in the habit of sitting up every night till two or three o'clock in the morning. The two brothers went out together, mounted their horses, which were waiting for them at the door, and rode side by side as far as the Palazzo Borgia, the present home of Cardinal Ascanio Sforza, who had taken it as a gift from Alexander the night before his election to the papacy. There the Duke of Gandia separated from his brother, saying with a smile that he was not intending to go home, as he had several hours to spend first with a fair lady who was expecting him. 
Cesar replied that he was no doubt free to make any use he liked best of his opportunities, and wished him a very good night. The duke turned to the right and Cesar to the left, but Cesar observed that the street the duke had taken led in the direction of the convent of San Sisto, where, as we said, Lucrezia was in retreat. His suspicions were confirmed by this observation, and he directed his horse's steps to the Vatican, found the Pope, took his leave of him, and received his benediction. From this moment all is wrapped in mystery and darkness, like that in which the terrible deed was done that we are now to relate. This, however, is what is believed. The Duke of Gandia, when he quitted Caesar, sent away his servants, and in the company of one confidential valet alone, pursued his course towards the Piazza della Giudecca. There he found the same man in a mask who had come to speak to him at supper, and, forbidding his valet to follow any farther, he bade him wait on the piazza where they then stood, promising to be on his way back in two hours' time at latest and to take him up as he passed. And at the appointed hour the duke reappeared, took leave this time of the man in the mask, and retraced his steps towards his palace. But scarcely had he turned the corner of the Jewish ghetto when four men on foot, led by a fifth who was on horseback, flung themselves upon him. Thinking they were thieves, or else that he was the victim of some mistake, the Duke of Gandia mentioned his name, but instead of the name checking the murderer's daggers, their strokes were redoubled, and the duke very soon fell dead, his valet dying beside him. Then the man on horseback, who had watched the assassination with no sign of emotion, backed his horse towards the dead body. The four murderers lifted the corpse across the crupper, and walking side by side to support it, then made their way down the lane that leads to the church of Santa Maria in Monticelli. The wretched valet they left for dead upon the pavement. But he, after a lapse of a few seconds, regained some small strength, and his groans were heard by the inhabitants of a poor little house hard by. They came and picked him up, and laid him upon a bed, where he died almost at once, unable to give any evidence as to the assassins, or any details of the murder. All night the duke was expected home, and all the next morning. Then expectation was turned into fear, and fear at last into deadly terror. The pope was approached, and told that the duke of Gandia had never come back to his palace since he left his mother's house. But Alexander tried to deceive himself all through the rest of the day, hoping that his son might have been surprised by the coming of daylight in the midst of an amorous adventure, and was waiting till the next night to get away in that darkness which had aided his coming thither. But the night, like the day, passed and brought no news. On the morrow the Pope, tormented by the gloomiest presentiments and by the raven's croak of the vox populi, let himself fall into the depths of despair. Amid sighs and sobs of grief, all he could say to any one who came to him was but these words repeated a thousand times. Search, search, let us know how my unhappy son has died. Then everybody joined in the search, for, as we have said, the Duke of Gandia was beloved by all, 
but nothing could be discovered from scouring the town except the body of the murdered man, who was recognized as the Duke's valet. Of his master there was no trace whatever. It was then thought, not without reason, that he had probably been thrown into the Tiber, and they began to follow along its banks, beginning from the Via della Ripetta, questioning every boatman and fisherman who might possibly have seen, either from their houses or from their boats, what had happened on the river banks during the two preceding nights. At first all inquiries were in vain, but when they had gone up as high as the Via del Fantanone, they found a man at last who said he had seen something happen on the night of the 14th, which might very possibly have some bearing on the subject of the inquiry. He was a Slav named George, who was taking up the river a boat laden with wood to Repetta. The following are his own words. Gentlemen, he said, last wednesday evening when i had set down my load of wood on the bank i remained in my boat resting in the cool night air and watching lest other men should come and take away what i had just unloaded when about two o'clock in the morning i saw coming out of the lane on the left of san girolamo's church two men on foot who came forward in the middle of the street and looked so carefully all around that they seemed to have come to find out if anybody was going along the street. When they felt sure that it was deserted, they went back along the same lane, whence issued presently two other men, who used similar precautions to make sure that there was nothing fresh. They, when they found all as they wished, gave a sign to their companions to come and join them next appeared one man on a dapple-gray horse which was carrying on the crupper the body of a dead man his head and arms hanging over on one side and his feet on the other the two fellows i had first seen exploring were holding him up by the arms and legs the other three at once went up to the river while the first two kept a watch on the street and advancing to the part of the bank where the sewers of the town are discharged into the Tiber, the horseman turned his horse, backing on the river. Then the two who were at either side, taking the corpse, one by the hands, the other by the feet, swung it three times, and the third time threw it out into the river with all their strength. Then, at the noise made when the body splashed into the river, the horseman asked, "'Is it done?' and the others answered, Yes, sir, and he at once turned right about face. But seeing the dead man's cloak floating, he asked, What was that black thing swimming about? Sir, said one of the men, it is his cloak. And then another man picked up some stones, and running to the place where it was still floating, threw them so as to make it sink under. As soon as it had quite disappeared, they went off and after walking a little way along the main road, they went into the lane that leads to San Giacomo. That was all I saw, gentlemen, and so it is all I can answer to the questions you have asked me. At these words, which robbed of all hope any who might yet entertain it, one of the Pope's servants asked the Slav why, when he was witness of such a deed, he had not gone to denounce it to the governor. But the Slav replied that, since he had exercised his present trade on the riverside, he had seen dead men thrown into the Tiber in the same way a hundred times, and had never heard that anybody had been troubled about them. 
so he supposed it would be the same with this corpse as the others, and had never imagined it was his duty to speak of it, not thinking it would be any more important than it had been before. Acting on this intelligence, the servants of His Holiness summoned at once all boatmen and fishermen who were accustomed to go up and down the river, and, as a large reward was promised to any one who should find the Duke's body, there were soon more than a hundred ready for the job so that before the evening of the same day, which was Friday, two men were drawn out of the water, of whom one was instantly recognized as the hapless duke. At the very first glance at the body there could be no doubt as to the cause of death. It was pierced with nine wounds, the chief one in the throat, whose artery was cut. The clothing had not been touched, his doublet and cloak were there, his gloves in his waistband, gold in his purse. The duke then must have been assassinated, not for gain, but for revenge. The ship which carried the corpse went up the Tiber to the Castello Sant'Angelo, where it was set down. At once the magnificent dress was fetched from the duke's palace which he had worn on the day of the procession, and he was clothed in it once more. Beside him were placed the insignia of the generalship of the church. Thus he lay in state all day, but his father in his despair had not the courage to come and look at him. At last, when night had fallen, his most trusty and honoured servants carried the body to the church of the Madonna del Papala, with all the pomp and ceremony that church and state combined could devise for the funeral of the son of the Pope. Meantime the blood-stained hands of Cesar Borgia were placing a royal crown upon the head of Frederick of Aragon. This blow had pierced Alexander's heart very deeply. As at first he did not know on whom his suspicions should fall, he gave the strictest orders for the pursuit of the murderers. But little by little the infamous truth was forced upon him. He saw that the blow which struck at his house came from that very house itself, and then his despair was changed to madness. He ran through the rooms of the Vatican like a maniac, and entering the consistory with torn garments and ashes on his head, he sobbingly avowed all the errors of his past life, owning that the disaster that struck his offspring through his offspring was a just chastisement from God. Then he retired to a secret dark chamber of the palace, and there shut himself up, declaring his resolve to die of starvation. And indeed for more than sixty hours he took no nourishment by day nor rest by night, making no answer to those who knocked at his door to bring him food, except with the wailings of a woman, or a roar as of a wounded lion. Even the beautiful Julia Farnese, his new mistress, could not move him at all, and was obliged to go and seek Lucrezia, that daughter doubly loved, to conquer his deadly resolve. Lucrezia came out from the retreat where she was weeping for the Duke of Gandia, that she might console her father. At her voice the door did really open, and it was only then that the Duke of Segovia, who had been kneeling almost a whole day at the threshold, begging his holiness to take heart, could enter with servants bearing wine and food. The Pope remained alone with Lucrezia for three days and nights. 
then he reappeared in public outwardly calm if not resigned for guicciardini assures us that his daughter had made him understand how dangerous it would be to himself to show too openly before the assassin who was coming home the immoderate love he felt for his victim End of section 15.